and welcome to The Bunker, your need to know on news and politics across the world. I'm Chris Jones. The world was captivated by the death of Vladimir Putin's greatest political opponent, Alexei Navalny. The Kremlin's immediate formal diagnosis was that Navalny died of a blood clot, and then it was sudden death syndrome, and now no one is really sure. That has all been rubbished by many in the West who believe, and with good reason, that he was killed intentionally. Will we ever know the full truth? And what does the death of such a figurehead in resistance to Putin mean for Russia's future? Dr. Jan Dolbaum is head of research group Mobilization and Representation in Post-Soviet Eastern Europe at LMU Munich, and he's the co-author of Navalny, Putin's nemesis, Russia's future. And he joins me now in the bunker. Thanks for your time, Dr. Dolbaum. How are you? Hey, I'm good. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. Let's kind of dive in straight into to, to this news. Are you surprised by the situation that we're in, especially when you consider the assassination attempts in 2020? Yeah, it's hard to be surprised, really. Um, I was still shocked when I heard about it. So I, I'm not sure if that's a contradiction at all, but I did, and many other people did expect that it was going to be a very, very tough time for Navalny in jail. And you know, even without any um, murder attempts, just the, the pure conditions he was living in in the colony there, and then especially with the uh, repeated solitary confinement under the worst possible conditions, that 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 just makes it very hard to survive for twenty plus years. So there was something like an expectation that that we would hear these these terrible news at some point. I was still hoping that that he might make it a little longer and maybe survive Putin uh, politically at least. But that didn't happen. And, and but, but I was still shocked. I mean, any news like this is a shock, I think. And, and realizing that the regime is, is able to do something even we don't know what, the, what, what was behind this right now is, is always a shock, I think. Yeah, and you wrote um, an article, I think it was in The Dispatch, not too too long ago, where you wrote, uh, there is no doubt that the Kremlin bears full responsibility over Navalny's death. Could you explain a little bit what you mean by that? Yeah, sure. So when I, when I said that or wrote that, I definitely didn't mean to say that I know how this death occurred. Of course, yeah. because nobody knows. Um, as I just said, it, it may have been one or the other. But still, this is a personalist authoritarian regime. And that means that important political decisions are being made at the very top. So the institutions mm. have been hollowed out and um, they, they still serve functions, like the elections serve particular functions, the parliament does, etc. But but those functions are not to uh, disperse power or to, to organize power. Um, the, the real power is at the top is with Putin and with a very close circle. And important things like, for example, jailing your most important opponent, yeah. an almost independent opponent. That is a decision that's made at the very top. And and also the decision whether or not he will be looked after in prison, right? And whether such terrible conditions are allowed to happen for him or not, right? Or and and so, you know, under what circumstances he died, we don't know. But um for this position he was in, the political leadership is clearly responsible. And I want to come back to those prisons a little bit later on, but but just sticking with what we're seeing right now, I saw that there were a, a lot of people um, around the world, but but in in Moscow as well, laying flowers at Navalny's former home in in, in memory of him. What kind of reaction 
have we seen um, around the world, but also in Russia after his death? So let's compare this to the reaction we saw after the death of Boris Nemtsov in 2015. Yeah. That was also, I mean, that, that was a huge shock. Nemtsov, an important opposition politician, um, also a colleague of Navalny's, a little bit, little bit older, different, different generation, um, but but liberal opposition politician. And and he was shot just in front of the Kremlin in 2015. We still don't know who the, who the perpetrators of the perpetrators we know, but we don't know who the, um, the real people behind that were. And there was also a lot of flowers, but there was a, a huge protest march after that. That march had been registered before before the news because it, it, people wanted to protest against Russia's uh, um, intervention in Ukraine. But it turned into this huge um, uh, memory march for uh, for Nemtsov, and we didn't see anything like that for Navalny. And the reason is that the conditions have become much more repressive since then. So I think this gesture of laying flowers also has a, sort of a bit of a symbolic meaning it's it's a rather lonely gesture it's sort of people are grieving individually rather than collectively yeah and and i think that really is an important symbol i think for the for the mood in general which is which is more depression than anger i'd say and that doesn't mean that many people aren't aren't anger or furious but they don't allow themselves to to voice that in public because they they certainly know that that's not going to be met with um with very mild reaction, but quite quite the opposite. Yeah, so so essentially, as we've seen in Russia for a long time under Putin, and especially with the upcoming elections, people are scared to show how they re- really feel based yeah. on how the Kremlin might prosecute them for displaying those emotions. Is that an accurate representation? Yeah, I mean, the Kremlin has learned quite well to rule through emotions, I think. So when in the early Putin years, this this was not something they were particularly good at or, or trying. Um, they were more providing stability, they were providing uh, economic growth, and sort of ruling through through performance rather. In that that changed in the 2010s, particularly after the protests to 2012, and um, the annexation of Crimea was really one important moment where the regime, I think, understood uh, mm. that emotions are a very powerful tool to rule. And, and there they created something like, like positive emotions. We might not like that because um, we think, and, and rightly so, that the annexation of Crimea is, is, is clearly a violation of, of mm. international law. Um, but in Russia, the, the emotions were quite positive at the time. And it was pride and joy, and, and many people liked that. But now, even with the war against Ukraine, and, and much more still with uh, with the assassination of Navalny in 2020, and then and now his death, I think um, the emotion that the Kremlin wants to create is more something like hopelessness and despair. And of course, when people are angry about something, that can make them overcome their fear uh, for oppression, for example. But when they are hopeless and, and sad, really, then that doesn't really make them overcome their fear. So here, these two emotions of fear and, 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 and hopelessness really play together in order to, to keep people individualized and keep them from a collective reaction. How did Navalny create this this popular persona that he he had? How did he really get people behind him to believe in his politics? I mean, first of all, I think one should say that he he didn't have big media platforms or something. Um, of course, yes, the state media was always stacked against him. And given that, I think the support that he did have was was all the more impressive. Right. So if we if we think back ten years. Or 11 years, he had 27% of the vote 
in Moscow elections. Yeah. And even in 2020, he still had a, there was one survey by the Nevada Center that put him at 20% approval rating. And um, that has fallen to, to something like 9% now. That shows you that that within that very restricted media environment, he was able to get these kinds of figures. And, and, and that, I think, is really impressive. Um, and I think he did that through a very distinct combination of his his appearance. I mean, charisma is always a sort of a, a word that's that not easily definable. So I, I tend not to use it. But there was clearly something about his persona that that was attractive to people. And but much more precisely, I think it was his language and his humor um, that made him yeah. stand out. So he was really able to speak about things that were close to people's hearts in a way that both entertained them and also made them furious, right? And made them realize that this might not be their, their personal problem with, you know, corruption, whatever, broken roads, but that has political roots in, in how the system functions. And I think that was the dangerous thing about him, that he turned these everyday experiences of people into uh, political messages. And um, that that is what I think is is responsible for the, for the large or relatively large following. Is there a moment um, you think? Obviously, you've done massive a massive amount of research into, into Navalny. Do you think there's there's an exact moment where we can pinpoint in his his political career where the Kremlin knew that Navalny was a problem for them? I think that 2013 was clearly a, d- a decisive moment when they changed strategy. So he's coming up in the 2000s, uh, like a blogger, and, 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 and you know, social media was always part of his strategy. Yeah. Um, when when people in the Kremlin probably didn't even know what that is, then but then he sort of gained a bit of prominence during the protests in 2012, and then was trying to you know try out politics for real in the 2013 elections, and he had this uh, fraud case pending. And he was even convicted, so that he was appealing that conviction. And by some miraculous procedure, he could still compete in those mayoral elections. And and, and probably there was some sort of intervention um, by someone who thought it might be good to have him on the ballot um, to show that this is actually a democratic election, that mm. the um, candidate Sabianian, who was uh, supported by, by, by Putin, um, had some real position and would still win. And then Navalny made this, uh, almost got into the second round of those elections, 27%. And, and I think that was the moment when the Kremlin realized we, we might have a problem here. When we continue that strategy of just trying to showcase this liberal politician who will always lose because he might not actually lose. Yeah. And and so that was the moment when he was taken off any 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 ballots and, and never, never, ever made it again on any, on any ballot, right? And couldn't register his party. Um, and he did this presidential campaign in 2018 or 17, 18. He wanted to, um, desperately wanted to make uh, make it on the presidential election ballot. Of course, that was kind of um, an empty hope, and he probably knew that. But he used that occasion to build a network of supporters throughout the country, and that was probably the second moment when people in the Kremlin realized he doesn't just have support in Moscow, but he he can actually muster support across the country. In the second half of the interview, I asked Dr. Dolbaum about what kinds of sanctions could be placed on Russia following the death of Navalny. At the time we recorded, there were only around six put in place. 
But since then, the US has imposed more than 500 new sanctions on Russian entities. In a statement, President Biden said the massive package of sanctions have been put in place to make sure Putin, and I'll quote, pays an even steeper price for his aggression abroad and repression at home. Despite this, we've decided to keep the original question and answer in the final edit because the context that Dr. Dolbaum gives is still relevant and also gives wider context to how Russia could react to more sanctions placed on it from the West. Let's get back to that conversation. I want to ask a more general question about his his politics, because I think sometimes um, platforms and media outlets fall into the trap of perhaps presenting him as as the complete politician and this good versus evil kind of rhetoric when it comes to Putin versus Navalny. Mm. And, and, and that's not necessarily the case. It's, I read in your book that, um, and I'll quote this, he's a liberal who has made nationalist, even racist statements. What do you think, as a politician, his his kind of major flaws were? This is actually a pretty difficult question to answer because right. when we say flaws, we need some some yardstick, right? And of course, I, in, in no way do I want to downplay the things he said. I mean, they were really mm. nasty and, and, and horrible. If somebody would say them in the UK, for example, or Germany, um, you would never want to collaborate with them again. On the other hand, um, this isn't the UK or Germany. And so while you say, I I don't want to downplay those things, it's also important to recognize the context in which he he said that. He was trying to, and from the very start of his political career, build a broad alliance around the opposition to this authoritarian regime in the making. And at some point, he, he thought probably that nationalism um, he always called it democratic nationalism, but still could be yeah. part of that strategy. Right? He quickly realized that it couldn't be; it, it just didn't work. And um, and then he shifted that. So this is really a very short period in his in his political yeah. career when he experimented with nationalism and he, he moved away from that. It went back to back to you know liberalism. Then he went into sort of more left wing politics. So that also earned him criticism from his liberal colleagues and um, or libertarian colleagues. And so, so he was experimenting with putting together a rather superficial list of elements um, that might even be contradictory to the well-versed political observer who judges that program in the light of more coherent political programs that we know from, from parties in, in liberal democracies. But that wasn't the point. So he was trying to build a broad coalition. He was trying to speak to everybody. And he was trying to um, build this negative alliance against the authoritarian regime. And it didn't really matter whether these, the elements in that um, were contradictory or not. So it was pre-political. That's, that's I think, a good way to think about it. So some have called him an anti-politician because he was this projection screen, not really very coherent in his messaging, at least beyond democracy, rule of law. And he yeah. writes that that was also always the basis. Right? But beyond that, it was sort of a bit mixed. Um, and some say that it's it was more about his person, um, and and that's kind of an anti-political message. But I, I think it's actually a pre-political message. So he th- he he always thought you need uh, functioning elections, you need a functioning rule of law, um, you need, of course, freedom of speech, and then only then can politics really begin. Right? So we need to 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 start with that, and then we can then we can compete over different political programs. 
And and to, to arrive there, to overcome the regime, he, as I said, experimented with various things with, with different degrees of success. You mentioned elections there, and I, I want to talk about that. I want to kind of move on to, to more future elements of Navalny's death. Um, will Navalny's death have any implication, any impact on the presidential election that is coming up? Uh, well, we don't know, but I I don't think it's very likely. Um, it would have been different if Boris Nadezhdin was still on the ballot. Yes. So that that was this this liberal candidate who had some sort of ambiguous relationship with the Kremlin. Some argued that he was maybe a candidate that the presidential administration placed on wanted to place on the ballot or experimented with that um, because he had an anti-war position and that was pretty clear. But he was always ready to make compromises. He was he's still in Russia, of course, and he hasn't criticized the regime in a way that others have and for which they have been prosecuted. But still, there was a bit of enthusiasm when his candidacy came up. Many people in the liberal opposition, even those who usually fight on social media with each other, both Navalny's team included, um, endorsed his candidacy and and people were lining up Mm. across the country um, to give their signatures for him to, to, to make it on the ballot. And But then he was not. So the Kremlin decided that he was probably too big of a threat. But had he been on the ballot, then Navalny's death would probably could have made a difference for this election because it might have mobilized more people to, to vote for Nadir. Um Now that the presidential election is really a complete empty, you know, I, I, I don't say facade because as I said, institutions, even in other regimes, have functions. In this case, the function it has for the regime uh, is to demonstrate its power to completely o- overpower and dominate um, society, and that's all. That's an important message to send for the regime. But yeah, I, I don't think that Navalny's death is going to to have any any real impact on that. We've also heard a lot of uh, Western leaders say that there's going to be consequences after Navalny's death. David Cameron, the uh, UK's uh, foreign secretary, said that that there'd be consequences. So did Joseph Burrell, who's the EU's high representative. Um, We have seen, I think, six prison bosses sanctioned very recently. Do you think we're likely to see a lot more? If so, how long do you think that is likely to take? And does the Kremlin even care if it's sanctioned because it's already under so many different sanctions anyway. I'm not really very familiar with the plans of, of the sanctions. What I can say is that I don't think the Kremlin is going to care. And if it cares, then it will actually benefit from those sanctions more than, or, or at least perceive uh, that it benefits because it will use those additional sanctions for its continuous claim that the West is out to get Russia. So there were even plans I heard to, to name the new sanctions after Navalny, yeah. um, from the, the EU sanctions, right? And I, I wouldn't think that that's such a terribly great idea because if you you know if you want to send the signal that Navalny is the agent of the West, then you should do that, right? Mm. Uh, then then the naming the sanctions after Navalny would clearly communicate that to Russia. I mean, it's obviously Navalny is not an agent of the West, um, but the Russian propaganda would. Uh, you know, rejoice in, in in using that opportunity to to make that clear to its to its own population. So, um, I'm I'm really skeptical about about those things, which which doesn't mean that I'm against the sanctions. Right? They might have not the effects that people want them to have on Russia, um, but I think it's still important to send the signal that things like this cannot 
go unpunished. And, and more importantly, I think to other countries, because Russia is just simply in a position where it can afford to just you know not care. Yeah. But, but still, the the signal I think in, in general is important. What then, of course, must also be considered is what effect these sanctions have on ordinary Russians. Yeah. So um, Navalny probably was was not so much for these broad-based sanctions against Russian economy, etc., but more for, for personal sanctions against regime agents. And and um, we see that now that, that many people, even, even colleagues of mine, sometimes have difficulty to get to other places, for example, um, with, with the Baltic states closing the borders, Finland doing the same, um, and, and generally it being much harder for Russian citizens to, to get visas. At least if they if they if they not directly prosecuted, right? Yeah. And um and I think that that can also have counterproductive effects. I mean, I understand all the reasons for doing that, and I don't want to really voice a strong opinion on this, but but I think it's important to keep in mind that there are a lot of ordinary Russians who have no yeah. uh, role in this, who have always opposed the regime in the way they could, even if that wasn't much, and and I think. You know, they they shouldn't necessarily be punished. Yeah, uh, someone else that we've heard a lot from since Navani's death is his wife Yulia. Do you think that she has uh, much of a future in in R- Russian politics? We've heard her talking uh, quite a lot and, and trying to carry on the messaging that Navalny was putting out there before his death. I think it's very impressive and brave for her to just three days or so after her husband's death to come forward and say, "I'm going to." continue his work that shows that she's you know an incredibly strong person and we don't know and what that will mean we, maybe she yeah. doesn't really know herself yet i don't know um she has been at navalny's side quite prominently in the past years so she's been on stage with him when he did this presidential campaign in 1718 um she was really part of his public persona so she and her kids, they appeared on Navalny's Instagram frequently. Um, she gave interviews too. And and, and she was, um, some some have reported more and more involved also in, in the politics. So it's quite possible that, that she will actually develop a profile of her own and, and continue that. Of course, she's not there to just replace Navalny. She can't do that yeah. and she won't want to do that. Um, but to keep his memory alive and at the same time move the campaign forward with some personal element from her is quite possible. I mean, she has endured so many things that I, I, I'm definitely sure she has the strength and the persistence to do that. But that's still speculation. Yeah. Just one final question. What kind of legacy do you think that Navalny has left on Russian politics? Do you, do you, do you think it's mostly a positive legacy? I mean, what he did show is that even in the darkest and most grim circumstances, you can still be humorous and uh, laugh about the regime rather than be afraid of it. And, I, and even, even if that's the only thing that he leaves behind for, 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 for Russians, um, that's a good thing because it helps to endure this, this phase where the regime is is no longer trying to do anything positive. Really. Um, it's it's presenting itself as a victim of the West and as a powerful and brutal force. And those things aren't attractive. 
and 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 mm. even to most Russians they aren't attractive, but most Russians go along with it. Um, but in that phase, where the, where the regime is on that trajectory, and I don't think that there's anything from within that can change that trajectory, we just have to wait until until it ends, sort of comes to, to a natural conclusion, maybe. Mm. But during that phase, having this this hope and this perspective, and you don't have to let the regime morally dominate you, and then then that would be a great, you know, and very important legacy of not binding. Yeah, and thanks so much for for joining me in the bunker. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Listeners, you can buy Navalny, Putin's nemesis, Russia's future through our affiliate bookshop and you'll help fund the bunker by earning us a small commission for every sale. The link for that is in the show notes. Alexei Navalny's death comes as little surprise. Perhaps the bigger surprise is that it didn't come sooner. Vladimir Putin's regime has grown darker and as Dr. Dolbaum says in his dispatch article, brutal. In tomorrow's episode, I'm joined by someone who claims the Russian president wasn't always this way. Abbas Galyamov is a former speechwriter for Putin turned political analyst. He lives now in exile as an enemy of the state and has some choice words for his former boss. Stay tuned for that interview. And if you want more like this, remember to back us on Patreon for just £3 a month. You'll get access to all of our episodes first without the ads. In doing so, you'll help in part to fund important independent journalism and research that inspires conversations just like this. I'm Chris Jones, reporting from The Bunker. I'm Ross Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now? The politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? with me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez, out now, wherever you get your podcasts. The Bunker was written and presented by Chris Jones. The producers were Chris Jones and Eliza Davis-Beard, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, the group editor is Andrew Harrison, with music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>